0: You'll have to follow me. That's just the way it is. Well, um, this particular uh, set of verses before me, which now I'm going to have to actually open my Bible. Well, actually not. I can read it right behind me. I want to read it, and then, then we'll um, talk about it. And Many of you have heard this probably for decades, um, maybe every Christmas. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that in all the world, that all the world should be registered I'm just going to tell you that this is such a familiar story to most, if not all of us. This is the one story that my father would read to us every Christmas Eve. Um, we didn't do Twas the Night Before Christmas, we did Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. I think probably it's the most self-contained story of the birth of Jesus, it's full of joy, full of angels, and so it's just one of the most popular Christmas stories, um, and in, in, in my, my thinking as a kid, and unfortunately up until probably sometime last year, the image that, that came to my mind when it came to this Christmas story was rather cute, or even cozy, kind of cuddly. And um, some of it's formed by, by the Christmas carols, which talk about, you know, all is calm, all is bright. And you kind of pictured Mary with a bright, shining face and, you know, not a worry, In the world of concern, and there's animals lying all you know, um, quiet and and at peace. And there's the wise men, and there's baby Jesus who has a nice little smile in the hay and manger, and and this kind of um, Thomas Kincaid kind of uh, soft lighting, you know. And it's this kind of picture that that I have or had that 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 went with this particular um, story. And it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination, or should I say realistic imagination, to realize that the scene that he just wrote about is a desperate one. Uh, There's no way that everything was calm and bright. When you're giving birth to a baby in some kind of a rustic form of a corral or a stable, I don't think there's a woman on earth who could say that all was calm and all was bright in giving birth in such a situation as that. That's just that's just not the right picture. Nevertheless, our familiarity with this, this particular story, and in my case, I'll admit, um, I, I, I I didn't really see in these words some of the profound truth that's contained within them. It wasn't until last year, meditating on this, I, I realized, wow, this this these 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 texts, in particular, we're looking at verses one through seven, are. Are significant. Like the things are being said about the way in which God works that are that are profound. Um, that is, it kind of shows us what really matters to God versus maybe what doesn't so much matter to God. And that that's what struck me in my own reflections on this text. In a manner of speaking, um, I think one of the things that comes to light is is. Uh, and this, I'm going to put this in a rather humanistic way or human language. <laughs> Is, is what arises from the text is what impresses the Lord. I realize that, technically speaking, God is not impressed by anything because he knows everything. Nevertheless, God delights in things. He considers things worthy or great and is able to express it in different ways. So I just want a little bit of leeway when I ask the question, what impresses God versus what doesn't impress God? And I'm going to answer that from the text. But before I do, I, I want to just take a moment and just kind of, um, if you will, um, consider how we express as humans um, that we're impressed by something, or maybe how we imp- uh, express that we're indifferent towards something, or even kind of in terms of disgust. I'm gonna I'm gonna use it in the message, so uh, bear with me. Uh, it's pretty universal that when people like. Us experience something wonderful, or we marvel at something. Typically, we respond the same way. It's like the Fourth of July when all the fireworks are going off. What sounds do people make? Ooh and ah. Oh. We were in Turkey, and there was a a, a a carpet factory where all these carpets were made by hand by these people. Some of them taking up to like a year to make. And these guys started rolling out these carpets and they got more and more complex and you could hear the room of our 18 people going, Ooh. oh, they were utterly astonished at how well these carpets were made. Well, that's, that's how we express that we're actually impressed by something. So what about when we feel indifferent? Well, There's this little noise that I notice people are making these days that kind of convey indifference. You know what that noise is? Eh? Right? I don't even know how to spell that, E-A-H, eh, you know? So how did you like the movie? Eh. How did, you, how did you like the food? Eh. Sweetheart, didn't I preach the most amazing sermon today? Eh. You know? All sense of self-confidence is vaporized like a snowball in a furnace when something like that happens. And she hasn't done that to me yet, but maybe today could be that day. Eh. You know, that, that says more than a thousand words, right? That's not something you want to hear. Eh. Is she good looking? Eh. <laughs> okay, so. You got the expression of, wow, I'm impressed. Wow. Ooh, ah. My youngest says swag. Um, or indifference. Eh. Or what about mild forms of disgust? My children taught me this one. Say, hey, you want to go outside and put up Christmas decorations with me? How do you spell that? PFT? Something like that in text language? Pfft. Mild form of disgust, right? Um. <laughs> pfft. I don't really like hearing that, by the way. There you have. Just ways that we express, that we're impressed by something, ooh, uh, or the eh, or the pfft. As I said, I want to use those. Um, what do you think that God goes ooh and ah and wow over? Again, allow my freedom of language here. Versus the things that God himself goes, eh. All right? Back to the story of Luke 2 in the birth of Jesus. When Luke opens, beginning in verse 1, I think you can transition at this point, Mike, with the words, next slide, perfect. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world... Should be registered, and here let me just back up and say that what's what what I never saw before in this text growing up was that two kings are referred to in this text, and they are so starkly contrasted. The first king referenced, of course, is Caesar Augustus, and in introducing the birth of Jesus in this way by drawing attention to. Uh, a decree by Caesar Augustus as he was setting the birth of Jesus in world history. And that gives kind of an indication that the birth of Jesus is going to have cosmic significance. But king number one, Caesar Augustus, he does something that, if you will, fulfills God's plan. Caesar Augustus. To a first century reader, you read Caesar Augustus and someone of um, enormous power and magnificence would come to mind. He was to the Roman Empire what George Washington is to the United States. Um, his, his, His given name is Octavian, the first emperor of Rome. The founder of the Roman Empire, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, he's the one who laid the, or created the infrastructure for the Roman Empire that would lay the foundation for an empire that would exist for almost 15 centuries. Um, the name Caesar Augustus, and it's interesting that the New Testament refers to him as Augustus because that was a name conferred upon him by the Senate that means magnificent, venerable, or majestic one. When he's, a per- he's the kind of person with the control and the power to be able to say, you know, expand and his armies go. He's credited with expanding the Roman Empire all the way from Britain all the way down to India. So we're talking about a formidable ruler. Many consider him to be of the top ten leaders, emperors, kings in the entire course of human history. So we're talking about someone of tremendous um, power and position and even historical repute. They say that our, our month of August is named after him. And our month of July is named after his adopted father, Julian. Interesting, huh? That his, his shadow would, 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 would stretch this far. But in this world, in the world of the New Testament, the world of Luke chapter 2, all eyes of the world were on him. Uh, there's no one who had a, a greater celebrity status than, than uh, Caesar Augustus. Um, he was the center of power. He was the, the spotlight of the world was upon him. All right, that's the first king we see. He's the he's the big news. He's the one. If there was a time and uh, excuse me, if there was a Time magazine, a People magazine, and a Forbes magazine, he'd be on front cover. Like everybody wanted to be with him or like him or around him. He's just he was the guy. The whole world sur- or surrounded or orbited around this guy named Caesar Augustus. In his marble palace in Rome. But in the same seven verses, we find that another king is mentioned. Hit the next part of the slide, Mike. And I'm not going to read all of this. But Caesar Augustus sends a decree out that causes Joseph and his wife Mary to go from one city to another. And in that city, the city of Bethlehem, verse 7, it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swathing clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So here you have, in verse 7, the birth of another king. Only the, the disparity between the two is almost immeasurable, right? Caesar Augustus. And the one who's born, Christ the Lord, as the angel would say a little bit later on, He's born in abject circumstances, as in um, desperation. Um, No room, no vacancy, um, probably born in a cave, um, to to fairly poor parents. Caesar, who ascended to a place where people worshipped him as a god. And that's what mankind does. There is this inner desire to ascend Meanwhile, you have this other king who who condescends by his own will from, let's just call it the gilded golden palace of heaven itself, to take the form of a a human um, in the direst, most abject, desperate circumstances. What an amazing disparity between Caesar Augustus and Christ. One in a place of privilege and exaltation, and the other in a place of humiliation. Two very different things. And yet, which, let me ask the question, which impresses God more? I know that's probably, that's not even a trick question. That's a really easy question. My sense from the Bible and belief and conviction is that when it comes to the power of man, the power of human emperors, and the power of human governments and empires, to Yahweh, his response, eh. Caesar Augustus, all that, the one who is called the son of the divine, eh. Or, pfft. Like, seriously, I... The reason I know that is because Psalm 2. The nations rage against the Lord's anointed, and what does the Lord do? He scoffs at them. He's like, are you serious? Right? That is the Lord, God of heaven, who reigns over all things, his attitude towards humanity that's full of itself. But when it comes to the birth of Jesus in, in, like, diametrically opposite context, heaven shows up, right? That's what the verses afterwards say. Think about the stories. There's no star that guides anybody to Rome. There's no wise men that are drawn to Rome. An angel doesn't show up over Caesar and say, Man, look, this is the guy. No, the angel shows up in an obscure town, an obscure village, over an obscure couple to a baby that's born in a stable. And then surrounded by myriads of angels, all saying, glory to God in the highest. Like something amazing is happening here. In other words, the birth of this baby in these abject circumstances holds heaven's rapt attention. Something profound is happening. You see the disparity? And, it, um, and there's, of course, I could, you could preach a thousand sermons on why the birth of this child was so important. right it's just i mean you can put it in broad categories like god's entire plan for human history to save humanity finds its centerpiece in the birth of this child period that's like a broad brush stroke and all the small brush strokes of this is god's heart of of love This is God's means of redemption. This is God's means of forgiveness. This is God's means, exclusive means of acceptance. This is God's means of recreating our souls, giving us new life. This is God's means of recreating the world. It's God's means of recreating a new humanity, of of giving hope and peace and love. And you could just add, 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 add. And you could keep on adding because the riches of who he is are unsearchable, unsearchable, And you still not come to the end of it, and all of it is wrapped up in the birth of this one we call Jesus, who is King, Savior, Redeemer, First, Last, Alpha, Omega, Morning Star. I mean, I can think of a hundred different names. All all in the birth of this, this child. Birth of God's son? Wow. Caesar Augustus? Yeah. Wow. Pfft. You know, I, I wish, because what God values and what God is impressed by really should be what we value and we're impressed by. And if, if, if God, by work of his Spirit, could bring us to a place where the things that the world worships, uh, notoriety, popularity, power, position, the Oval Office, the Kremlin, you name it. If we would, without diminishing the fact that God uses and has ordained those things, be able to go, eh. That's not the epicenter of my life. It neither causes me concern or fear, and I don't worship it. Because that is a a human thing. That's Caesar Augustus embodied. But the Christian heart, to be able to marvel and wonder and be impressed by that which God himself is most impressed by and what heaven is most impressed by, namely the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, Christ the Lord. And for the heart to go, ooh, and ah, and wow, and and this is what drives my life. There's two forms of worship one that worships the world and the powers of the world and this one, the power of heaven come in the person of Jesus Christ. This is God's awe. Wow. This is earthly powers, God's. eh. So you have these two kings, right? That's just, that's an amazing disparity and yet an amazing. It's amazing how God works in such a way that He does his greatest work through something so humble and something so obscure and something so ordinary. But I believe he does that with a particular purpose, and that is he works his greatest works through that which is obscure and humble and small to confound or if you will, blind the eyes of the wise and confound the strength of the strong. For it's only to those who are humble of heart who can actually see what God sees. God does things differently than we do. And whatever the world worships, you can pretty much bet that the Lord's like, really? Pfft. <laughs> eh. And some in the smallest little village in the little place that nobody ever knows God does his greatest work and goes wow now that's amazing that's God there's also another if you will a contrast between two decrees you could hit the next one Mike the only only reason that Caesar Augustus is mentioned in addition to locking the birth of Jesus into world history is because of a decree that he makes that is going to fulfill what god had ordained to happen when it says in those days a decree went out there is this this imperial command and his command is true his command is sure caesar augustus says listen i want a census of my entire empire and that that census to get everybody registered was for the sake of here it comes taxes That is, at the end of the day, he was was doing something to fill the coffers of Rome. So he sent out this decree. That's his purpose. And you think about how this worked. Okay? Follow me. Because there is a design. There is a providence in this that is powerful and shouldn't be missed. So Caesar Augustus, big man on campus. The most important, most powerful man who can speak a word, and it comes into fruit, comes into reality. He says, Census. Almost a thousand miles away is Joseph. Maybe he's reading the Nazareth Gazette. And he reads, Oh my goodness, there's a decree. Like we have to go to Bethlehem. And he goes to Bethlehem, I think. One of the explanations is he may have had hereditary property there, which is why he had to go so far away. He He gets this decree. Well We gotta leave. We gotta pack our bags. Like, we we actually gotta fulfill the law of Caesar. And so they pack their bags and they make their way some 90 miles south, give or take. And by the time they get to to Bethlehem, it just so happens Mary is already full term, but she goes into labor. No Braxton Hicks. This is the real deal. No room at the inn. And they end up giving birth somewhere in the vicinity of the village of, of, of Bethlehem. So. Think about this. (laughs) Decree? Joseph's required to leave Nazareth. They make their way to Bethlehem where Jesus is born. Like, what is the big deal about that? Well, let's just say about seven centuries before Caesar Augustus ever lived, someone who sat on a much bigger and higher throne made another decree. And that decree is spoken through the prophet Micah in chapter 5 and verse 2. And Micah, if you could thank you. Where God says, where Yahweh says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, even back in Micah's time, this is barely a spot on the map, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And then the next statements are rather ominous. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. All right, so, you with me so far? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. God has decreed, Yahweh has decreed, that the ruler of Israel, the legitimate heir of David, the one on whom Yahweh would place... Governance upon his shoulders, that he would rule the earth with righteousness and justice and steadfast love, would be born in or come from this little town called Bethlehem. So here's the thing. You put those two things together. You realize when great and mighty Caesar was offering this decree to raise taxes, or at least raise revenue, he was simply doing something that God had already ordained to happen. Or to put it differently, the wheels of history are far bigger than the emperor. And in those great wheels of God's turning moving things, and having laws passed, and decrees, and censuses, Caesar was but a cog in the wheel, you see, a cog in the, to to, to truly, like, if you can call it big man on campus, I don't even like that, The, the, the one whose hands truly operate over all of history exhaustively, macro and micro, is Yahweh himself, and Caesar's just a little cog in this massive wheel that God is moving to accomplish his purposes. Now, that's impressive. But that's, that's the reality behind and underneath this text. God raised up Caesar for a purpose. Caesar made a decree with his own purpose, but God had him do that at a particular time and a particular place for a particular purpose to bring Joseph and Mary all the way down to Bethlehem to fulfill what God had ordained at the beginning. That is God. And that is providence. That is God's rule over the earth. That is... One of the foundation stones of biblical faith is to believe, as David said in Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And that there's nothing that happens either politically, geographically, or in terms of nature that are not underneath his providential care and design and movement. Not even a sparrow can fall from the sky apart from the will of God. And that's what, what should provide uh, Christians. I mean, if that's how God worked then, and he works that way throughout Scripture, then that's how he continues to work in our lives and in the world around us. So instead of believing that, that history, as we see it unfold, and we see it on the, um, in the newspaper or in the news, and we see nation rising against nation, and we see jets fall from the sky, and we see tensions, and we see sab- sab- saber-rattling, and... And we see wickedness as well as good things. We recognize and believe that there still is a God who's on the throne who is organizing and orchestrating it all to its perfect end. And therefore, we don't have to live in constant panic or fear, but rather to live in the simplicity of faith of knowing that our God reigns. And that's one of the purposes for the birth of Christ was so God could hand the reins of all the world into his hands so that he could bring things to their appointed end, which we still wait. What, what, what's impressive in this story? Hit the next slide if you would. One is the, the gift of God's son. Caesar, eh, God's son, the risen lamb of God. Wow. Caesar's authority and decree from the center of imperial power. Eh. Pfft. God who's able to orchestrate and work all things according to the counsel of his will. Wow. That's awesome. So how do you, will we live in that. And I'll um, want to finish with this is it really at the end of the day always kind of boils down to the same thing it does for me and i don't know it does for a lot of people for christians it's just learning to live with a very simple but persevering faith no matter how crooked the road gets knowing that god orchestrates life and knowing that as he orchestrates life, he's good to those who trust in him. Hit that next, if you could, just to put it on the screen. <laughs> to walk in simple trust, no matter how crooked the road. I, you pause, and if you were to use a little imagination, put yourself in uh, Mary and Joseph's shoes, you realize that um, the, the the path that God set them on, even in these verses, was a pretty crooked one in in terms of difficulties. You know, I I think personally I'd prefer that God um, just take my life on a straight line. I, I, I'd appreciate it. I'm just say, speaking from a purely honest human standpoint that doesn't like pain. I I prefer that God to just take me straight line, avoid the deviations, avoid the detours. Um, uh, avoid the roundabouts, you know, that you feel like you're kind of going around and around sometimes. I prefer to go in a straight line, and yet my life has never been a straight line. It hasn't. In fact, I've never really met anybody whose life has went in a straight line. And one of the things I appreciate about what Karen shared about her life is that she wanted it to move in a straight line, but found herself at a place where God had a detour and yet met with her there in a way that changed her. And, and, and that's, that's, that's life. God's still in control, but a life that tends to be very curvy, sometimes crooked, detours and roundabouts. I, mean, I know everybody elevates, you know, Mary and Joseph to a place that that probably shouldn't be... They're ordinary people um, with all the fears and anxieties and human tendencies that we have. Still sinful, regardless of what some may say. Um, but, you know, I mean, at each point of the, even these seven little verses, you realize they could, have, they could have whined about it and said, God, what the heck are you doing? From, from the Roman decree to go, you know, go register. And Jewish people saw that as uh, in that day. They saw it as an oppressive act. They were angry about it. Lord, seriously? You're gonna have Rome pass a law now that's gonna require me to go with my nine months ready to pop, wife? Like, could could you pick maybe a better time, like maybe after the baby comes, or or, or at least boove it up for four for months? Or you can imagine Mary, I mean, she's full terms. She's gotta go 90 miles either by camel, donkey, or walk. Like seriously. Joseph, you want me to go down to Beth- like this? There are no clinics there 's no doctors along the way. Like what happens if I go into labor en in route in the desert and then to get into to, to, to Bethlehem and realize there 's not, there's not a single vacancy in the motel room n- there 's no place to go like who gives birth like this and then to, to find out the only place left is a, is a place that for all practical purposes, she gave birth in the same way that the animal kingdom does. Outside of the comfort of a home. At every point, you just say, what's up with that? Did you have to throw that curve in? And you just, you know, that's where we shouldn't overcomplicate things. And just recognize that in these Difficulties and detours and roundabouts, that God still is good. And though it may be difficult, and though at times it may hurt, God simply put, I'm going to trust you, and I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other. That, Parkway, is, is the Christian life, boiled down to its lowest common denominator. Lord, I'm, I'm going to trust you, despite the fact I don't fully understand how you organize all of history for our good. I'll trust you, living with the hope, Advent, Sunday 1. Living with the hope that at the end of this journey, through the deviations and the roundabouts and the right turns and the detours, there awaits for each and every one of us Resurrection and that is just that's where we're going and we have to trust him along the way that's where we're going we have to trust him on the way just a simple trust regardless of how crooked the road gets i know there's a lot of crooked stories in here and some people are past some of the difficulties and some people are just going into them maybe one of these maybe one of these advent sundays maybe today will be one of those moments where when you, like Karen, can say, you know what? I really believe the Lord's asking me to give up control and simply to trust him. Or to give up being discontent and to trust him. Or to give up being in control. I already said that. Um, And just to trust him. I pray that 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 happens. It's It's a freeing experience to have the Holy Spirit free you to trust and put your hope in somebody bigger than you. Certainly bigger than Caesar Augustus. Amen? Father, take these words and do what only you can do. And I pray for those who are here who feel and sense you speaking directly to them. I pray that you would impress upon them. I pray that you would not allow um, this moment to pass by. I pray that you would not allow them the ability to justify or to change the subject in their mind before they, they do their business with you. And uh, maybe it's surrender. Maybe it's just a recommitment of trust. Uh, but we pray you work in this, these, these moments that we have with you in this Christmas season when everything's so busy and, and ask you to to do your work and meet your people in the way that they need to be met in Christ's name. Amen.